Welcome to the second episode of Into the Royal. This is Zach. And this is Warren. And I just want to say first, uh, would like to apologize for how late this update was. We've been rather busy these past two weeks. Um, I was away on vacation to D.C. two weeks ago, and then just last week we had the Star City open, but we'll discuss that at the closer to the end of the episode. In fact, we were at the Star City Games open in Washington, D.C., which occurred on February 26th, and it was the largest Star City standard open event in the history of that pro circuit. 693 people in attendance, and that, I do not believe, included the pros who showed up even later. That's correct. So it was 693 plus however many people weren't even there yet. Yeah, absolutely. And what we're going to do tonight is talk, is going to break this podcast down into three segments. The first segment is going to be on a theory that Zach and I have created, which is called disadvantaged attachment theory. The second part of the episode will be on building a better mana base. And the third part and the final part of the episode will be on our experience at the largest ever Star City event. So to start today's episode, we're going to talk about disadvantaged attachment theory and why and how we came upon it. So disadvantaged attachment theory is simply having an attachment to a card or a theory or a deck or an idea. It can be an attachment to anything that leads you to making a move or doing something that puts you at a disadvantage to what everyone else is doing. Right. It could it could be disadvantaged attachment theory can be used within the game state. It can also be used in deck construction, which is where frequently disadvantaged attachment theory will rise. You'll see it surface most often in deck construction. What will happen is someone will be uh, attached to a particular card. Usually it's a creature spell or or a non-creature spell that's a particular type of removal. Uh, For example, let's say they have an attachment to Lightning Bolt and their metagame is filled with goblins. Uh, Lightning Bolt is great against goblins, but Arc Trail is probably better in that particular metagame. But... Looking at disadvantaged attachment theory, we came upon this situation where a teammate of ours was confident and insistent that Abyssal Persecutor was the right card for this given format. Now, let's, if we look at that for just a, mo- a minute, a few months ago, what was the metagame at the time? There was a lot of 6-6 Titans from the M11 set. Most notably, that would be Grey Titan and the dominance of blue-black control at Worlds. There wasn't really an answer or a, a quick, efficient answer for dealing with Grave Titan. We, we did not have Go for the Throat at the time. Doomblade wasn't going to work, obviously, due to its um, black requirement. Lightning Bolt doesn't take care of the situation. So you were almost down to um, Journey to Nowhere or Brittle Effigy, almost a sorcery speed spell to remove a Titan. However, he's already put two tokens into play. So when Titans were dominating the metagame, our teammate thought a turn four Titan would be better than a turn six Titan, which led him to believe that Abyssal Persecutor was the most effective way of creating a deck that had a beat stick. But, of course, with MBS, we've seen the rise of much faster decks, 
such as Cadaltha Red, Boros, and even Calgo, which can easily set up a turn three clock. Yes, Calgo uh, is very fast for a control deck. And also, we've seen we saw Sword of Feast and Famine arrive on the scene, which is protection from black, which means your measly Squadron Hawk can now block that Abyssal Persecutor for as long as you want it to. Exactly. So, while Abyssal Persecutor was great after Worlds and when Blue-Black Control was your dominant deck, now that Cargo is your dominant deck and a lot of these faster aggro decks are out, Abyssal Persecutor just doesn't cut the... doesn't make the cut. Yeah, it, does, it doesn't meet the requirements of... <clears throat> What is out there against it? The the moment Go for the Throat um, was printed. Granted, Go for the Throat helps you remove uh, Abyssal Persecutor. But you have to remember, you don't always want to use removal spells on your own creatures. So the way I look at Abyssal Persecutor is it looks really, really good on the card. A 6-6 six, six for 4 with Trample. It's got Evasion with Flying. Everything is great. This guy is an auto-include. And then you build a deck around it. And building the deck part seems very, very easy. And then you play it. And you find yourself in a very disadvantaged game state due to the variance and fluctuations and basically resistance from the opponent. For instance, when you're facing down a Squadron Hawk who's about to be equipped with Sword of Feast and Famine, which would just shut down the deck entirely... Right, it would shut down a deck with Abyssal Persecutor as its focus. Well, you could go for the throat, but you have to think, what if I don't get another removal spell for the rest of the game and I'm exactly. sitting on an Abyssal the entire game? Using the go for the throat prior to the equipment of Sword of Feast and Famine. So, you always have to sit there going... Am I going to find another removal spell in time to win the game? Right. Because Feast and, he can always just re-equip Feast and Famine. He can always just put it on another creature. You can't block, and eventually you just run out of life, and you can never get rid of Abyssal Persecutor. But you also can't just let the Sword of Feast and Famine be equipped. So you're stuck in a situation where you're going, I can't do anything because neither option is the best choice. It's very much like a limited environment. Where you have, in your limited deck, you may have a few removal spells, and the timing of that removal spell is so incredibly important. Do you use the removal spell early on in the game state, or when larger, more serious threats may come? I think it was Matt Sperling this week on Star City Games Premium who talked about that specific concept. Without getting back to disadvantaged attachment theory... First of all, we're not just focusing on one particular card like Abyssal Persecutor. There are a lot of examples that we can use for the attachment problem. But first of all, you have to understand the origin and the cause of attachment theory. And most of the time, it is always based on fear. It may be fear of a particular deck archetype in the metagame. It may, for example... Balakut is everywhere and I must do something to stop it, therefore I must include this card in my deck, such as Tectonic Edge. When your mana base doesn't support Tectonic Edge, it may be a fear of Planeswalkers, so I must include X removal to be able to deal with them. Those may be good ideas and may be things that you have to do, but the fear of something is causing the Magic player to attach themselves to a particular variable that puts themselves in a disadvantaged state. So I'm going to give you an example here that I saw specifically at the Star City Open. Our friend was playing against Calgo, and he had two go for the throats in hand and a memory side. It was turn four. He can cast the memory side. His opponent's tapped out. But he has the Calgo player, Sword of Feast and Famine, and a Squadron Hawks on the board. Now... Our friend could just wait and, to, and cast Go for the Throat and kill the Squadron Hawks and set his opponent back a turn, but he went ahead and cast Memoricide anyway. Uh, did, the, did the Hawk have... No, it no, was not so equipped. he was not equipped. Yes, the okay. Hawk was not equipped. Um, so he went ahead and cast Memoricide and called Jace the Mind Sculptor. Now, while that's a great play in and of itself, your number one card you don't want to see Sword of Feast and Famine is sitting on the board staring at you, 
and you have an out to set your opponent back two mana and a turn, and probably force him to play something else behind it. Right. So w- what you're saying then is his attachment was the attachment to the thought that at no matter what cost, I must get rid of Jason Mind Sculptor. Yes. That's the attachment. Yes. Even though, as we've proven in testing, Sword and Feast and Famine was something that he should be much more afraid of. He shouldn't be afraid of anything, but... It was something he should worry Concerned. about more. Yeah, he should worry about the Sword of Feast and Famine more, because if that play, if that card got equipped to something, it was just about an auto loss for him. Right. So, but focusing on the attachment aspect, there was, in that particular example, we did not have attachment to a card, we had attachment to a concept. Concept being, Jace the Mind Sculptor must be dealt with immediately. And even better, if it's done before it even sees play. So therefore, attached to the idea, put himself in a disadvantaged game state, because even though he got rid of public enemy number one, he put himself in a worse position. Because now his opponent could equip Squadron Hawks, because he had to tap out to cast the members out. And he has no outs to the equipped. Exactly. He was... He had nothing he could do about it. All he could do was sit there and watch his life points dwindle into nothing. So the point being there is that if, when you become afraid of anything, be it a card or a theory, yeah. and become attached to and it... And not just afraid. It also may be inclusion. No matter If I'm blue, I must play preordained. Now, I love preordained. But you have to be open to changing anything. You must free yourself of the idea that certain cards must be included in a particular deck archetype. You have to free yourself from the fear that whatever you build, you must prevent your deck from failing miserably to a particular deck that exists in a format. And I feel a key word that Warren just said was prevent. Uh, with a lot of decks, that I can only name two in my mind, that ever worried about preventing your opponent from doing something, a lot of decks are more worried about just winning the game. If you're an aggro player or a combo player, your goal is to reduce your opponent's life points or deck or whatever from to zero, to get them to zero. Be less worried about if your opponent plays a Jace and sets you back one turn, because if he has to play, if he has to prevent you from winning the game, he has to wait turns. You're preventing your opponent from doing something by do by sticking to your game plan. Right. Now let's let's throw out some common ideas or some common um, the whole public of the magic community basically will say the same things. If I'm playing a red aggro deck, I must include what card? Goblin guy. And removal? Lightning bolt. If I'm in red aggro or red burn, I must include lightning bolt. As a magic deck builder, you have to consider that Lightning Bolt may not be the best card for your deck. If I'm on your side, listener, yes, Lightning Bolt more than likely is exactly the card you want in your Red Burn deck. But you still have to be open to the idea that potentially that it isn't. And, and the same with Blue. If you're playing Blue, I must include Preordain and Jace the Mind Sculptor. And I feel a really good example with that is if any control player would know, it's the Mana Leak Spell Pierce, what counter spell yep. argument are you running? Mm-hmm. A lot of times you only want to run like one Stoic Rebuttal, one Deprive at max. But in certain decks, Deprive's a great card, and Stoic Rebuttal becomes a counter spell. I'll give you an example of when Deprive is a better card over Stoic Rebuttal. If you have a lot of spreading seas in your metagame, then you're going to want to include... Deprive over Stoic Rebuttal, because that's how you get rid of Spreading Seas off your land if it's giving you a hard time. If it's on a Colonnade or a Tech Edge, that's how you get it off. But a lot of control players always debating what counter, how many of which counter spells should I run, how many counter spells should you run, and it basically just boils down to what are you playing against? Well, what's the attachment? The attachment is, I believe, that a lot of people feel you have to run four Spell Pierce okay. and three Mana Leak, even if the the format isn't isn't control. The okay. original Calgo deck ran nine counter spells and it was four spell peers. Okay. But when Calgo was first out, it was the only control deck. 
every single deck it was playing against was primarily creatures. And if that's the case, I'm saying I'm siding with Mana Leak. Mana Leak is going to be a better card if you're playing in an aggro format. Mm. But the idea is Spell Pierce is a better counterspell. And Spell Pierce is a good counterspell. It's a great counterspell. So you're saying a lot of control players, by default, put in four Spell Pierce without thought? Without Just thought. Just automatic. Without thought. It's instantly four spell peers. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, that's a good idea because you have so much other call go. Well, how great is that in a creature-heavy environment? It's worthless. Right. Well, nine times out, well, not worthless, worthless, but nine times out of ten, mm-hmm. you're going to get a Stoneforge Mystic, which is worthless anyway, or that you get rid of a cough, but then die to a hero of Oxen Ridge. Mm-hmm. So the point is, is that having any attachment to anything, even if the card is great and it's a perfect card mm-hmm. in any scenario it still has a chance of being bad. Okay. So you cannot attach yourself to, say, Spell Pierce if Mana Leak is the better option. Okay, so to summarize, disadvantage attachment theory is when you as the Magic player have an attachment to a card, a play style, a deck archetype, or any other choice or idea that puts you in a disadvantaged state, whether it be within the game environment itself, or in deck construction. All right, we're going to take a quick break here, and we'll be right back with the second part of our episode, Building a Better Mana Base. Welcome back to the second episode of Into the Royal. This segment will be about building a better mana base. And I'm sure that when I said building a better mana base, everyone expected some type of mathematical formula that would do the calculations for you. Wrong. Wrong. There are formulas that do exist, but how effective are they? Not too good. Because the biggest problem is, while Magic at its core is a math game and a logic game, what people seem to forget is that there are a lot of different factors that come into play with mana. One of the most important factors, and one of the reasons why I think the formulas that exist don't work, is that they don't provide for you how early you need the mana. Example. Let's say you're running a two-color deck, and it's not uh, proportionate to one another. It's not equally red, equally green. Let's say it's the majority of the deck is green with a splash of red for Lightning Bolt and Goblin Guide. If you used uh, the formulas that do exist, two of the most uh, famous ones are counting the number of, let's say, red cards in this example and doing the math to determine how much red mana source you need. That's one. The second one is count the number of mana symbols to determine how much mana you need. And and then that's fine, and that may be true. But it doesn't tell you how how soon and how desperately you need that mana. In, In the example that I'm giving, in a majority, a dominant green deck with a splash of red, you need red mana early for Goblin Guide, and for Lightning Bolt. So you can't wait till turn four or five to get your red mana source. You need it early, and that's what those formulas don't provide. I think the best example of the perfect mana base in terms of decks that have existed was, in my opinion, Mythic Conscription back when it was in Standard. An incredibly difficult mana base that worked. That worked almost every time. And in fact, uh, if you didn't know, Warren and I ran that deck when we first got serious about Magic. And so we really heavily tested standard with that deck. And we only lost maybe one out of every 20 games due to mana issues. And the big key there was that it didn't matter what color land you got as long as it was green on turn one. Yes, If you absolutely. had green mana on turn one, you were guaranteed to never have a mana problem. And that was because of three cards. Birds nope. of Paradise. Noble Hierarch. And Lotus Cobra. Lotus Cobra is easily the best mana fixer in the game of he's Magic. He's amazing. Even right now, he's not used enough. So, if anyone doesn't know, if you Noble gives white, blue, and green mana, 
Birds gives all five colors, and Lotus gives whatever color you choose for every land that comes into play for the turn. Times two. Times two if it's a fetch one. Um, and so anytime you would play a land, well, there's whatever color you want. You drop a noble, well, look, I have double green, I have green white, green blue. You see where I'm going with this. So it's very easy for, it was very easy for Mythic to hit whatever colors they wanted to hit in any combination of colors. Correct. Just because, look at how much mana fixing we have. Right, and we have a lot of mana fixing today with the dual lands that were printed in Scars. Um, our, our mana fixing as far as creature fixing is a little different. Um, anyone running green right now looking for creatures on turn one that produce multi-colors uh, will see exactly what the problem is. Birds is great, but let's say in a dual-color deck like green-red, uh, Land of War Elf is not Noble Hierarch. It, you, will, you will notice a huge difference. But getting back to what I, I just said, one of the important factors that you have to consider is how soon and how readily available you need that second or third color. And that's going to take the formulas that do exist and make them inaccurate. So always remember or consider how soon do I need it. If you're playing uh, a predominantly green deck that's, let's say, splashing white for uh, Baneslayer Angel and maybe a Sun Titan to get most of your three drops back, you don't need your white sources until much later in the game. Uh, but what about my monocolor decks, such as the mono green elf decks that are running around? Good point. A lot of those are only running 18 lands, yep. but they're still doing pretty well. So why is it that although we need, you know, red on turn one or blah, 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 why do I need 18 lands? Can't with all the mana colors, all the mana that's floating around with elves, why can't I run 10 lands? Well, I don't, t 10 lands would be obviously out of the question. You have to start, first of all, with what the default mana, base mana requirement is, which has, for as long as I know, has always been 24, and then you either decrease or increase from there. One of the formulas that do exist, which I think is pretty accurate, not, not all the way, but pretty accurate, is for every two, non-land mana producers subtract one land. So using this particular example, if you had 24 lands and you had two land of war elves, you could subtract one land from the mana base and go to 23. So in the case of the current elf decks that do exist, they have a lot of mana producers and they are using that formula. For every two, subtract a land, and that's why they've gotten themselves all the way down to 18. Because you have four Llanowar Elves, mm -hmm. four Arbor Elves, and four Elvish Archdruids for a total of 12 non-land mana producers, which would equal six, six cut lands. And if you go on the basic 24 land premise, that would equal 18, 18 lands. But as... A big but. Ward and I have talked about that quite a bit, and he personally, at heart, I know is an elf lover. Um... We've figured out that 18 is not the correct number of lands. It's actually, you need more than that. Yep. And I'll let him cover that because he knows that a lot more than I do. The, the, the problem that elves have, or is, is probably more in, on the green color side of the spectrum, mythic inscription had the same problem, or mythic period, is when those early mana producers got removed. If you, if back in, uh, before the rotation, if you were playing Mythic Inscription, it was very easy to see what was going on because turn one Noble Hierarch meant one thing. So people would start attacking the mana producers and therefore shutting you off of hitting your turn three drop or your, your turn four drop. And yeah, elves, elves need turn four, even turn five. That's how they play, you know, Nisa Ravane or Eldrazi Monument much earlier in the game. But what happens if you your opening hand, let's say, has two lands in it, you know, some Land of War Elves, Arbor Elf, and you go turn one, Land of War Elf, the Elf gets removed. Turn two, you play Arbor Elf, the Arbor Elf gets removed. Well, you just had access to four mana on turn three, but now your mana producers have been removed, and, and you have you no way to access your, it. And you can't hit your Elvish Archdruid with right. only two lands. And because you're running so few lands in the deck, your mana requirements at 18 really aren't high enough if 
your mana producers get removed. So if you stick to the formula of two for one, you know, two mana producers subtract a land, that's, that's great if you don't encounter resistance. I felt the correct number for that particular deck was 20, was 21. Uh, and, and here's why. And this is more from an experience or a feel factor. For one, I don't think people play enough lands in general. I don't, especially with fetchlands that are out there right now, I think 25 lands is the new 24. At least it is when I start uh, constructing a new deck or brewing. I almost automatically start with 25 instead of 24 because I'm always going to include fetchlands. So the reason you can run more lands than usual with fetchlands is looking at how many lands are removed from the deck each time you crack a fetchland. So let's say, for example, that you have four fetchlands in the deck, and in this example, you're running 24 lands. In your opening hand, let's say you have a fetchland and some other lands. If you crack the fetchland on turn one and pull a land from your forest, and I'm going to ask Zach this question, how many lands are now left in your deck? Well, let's say you had three lands in your opening hand, 21 lands are left in the deck, you crack that fetchland, only 20 lands are left in the deck, assuming you didn't draw one if you're on the, if you are not on the play. And if you don't use the fetchland and just play a land, how many lands are in your deck? Still 21. Now, on your next turn, let's say you crack another fetch and pull a land out. How many lands are left in the deck? There's only 19 left. And if you're not using fetches? There's still 20, there'd be 21 left. Be 21 left. Because, uh, if you're running 24, because you have three lands in the deck and you haven't cracked a fetch yet. So, what happens then on turn three? What are the odds that you're gonna draw a spell on turn three versus drawing a land on turn three if you're the non-fetch player? If you're the non-fetch player, such as control, you're much more likely to draw a land because there are two extra lands floating around in your deck. Exactly. So rather than having out of your 52 cards that are probably left in the deck, 51, let's just make it simple, 50 for math purposes, mm -hmm. you have a basically 1 in 3, like 1 in 2.5 chance of drawing a land, versus if you're running the fetches, you're actually about a flat 1, point, 1 out of 3 chance of drawing a land. Right. Now in certain decks, such as Boros, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. You want as few lands as possible in your deck. Because you do, you want to be drawing creatures, you want to be drawing spells. And you want to hit the fetches for the landfall effects. But in a control deck, you want to hit a land drop every turn. At least, yeah, through the first five turns, you want to hit a land drop every single time. But what fetches allow you to do is they allow you to increase the odds of having lands in your opening hand and through turns one or two, and we were talking about the elf, uh, the elf decks, instead of using 18, we're using 21, by adding fetches to the deck, you're increasing the odds that you get lands when you need them, turns one through three, and then shutting off the lands or decreasing the odds as the game continues. Whereas if you ran no fetches at all, the odds of having a lands, having the, the same number of lands in your opening hand is the same. But you're gonna, the risk of drawing more lands as the game goes on is higher if you're not using fetches. You can almost treat a fetchland as saying, tap this for whatever two colors it produces, and draw a card. Yes. Now, it's a specific draw, but every card, anything that thins your deck out is always good. Absolutely. You, another way of looking at it is treat every fetchland as two lands. Mm -hmm. Treat every fetchland as if you just drew two lands, but you can only use one for mana. Yep. So, fetchlands are great in the right deck, but you also need to be aware that maybe, you know, using it on turn one is not the best play. That's true, too. Because I've seen a lot of control decks that they'll crack it on turn one, get rid of that planes or island that's in their deck, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden they don't hit their fifth turn land drop because there was one less land in the deck, mm -hmm. and I get to cast my Gideon even though I was on the draw, and they don't get to cast their Gideon or their, you know, swing with their Celestial Colonnade. That's a big tempo loss if you're missing a land drop. True. And so when and when not to use fetches is... Just as is, crucial as whether crucial and skill-intensive. But... Uh, for any mono-colored player, let's say goblins or elves uh, in, in any environment, we'll, we'll stick to standard right now. Um, if you're, let's say, running 20 lands 
for just try adding two fetches, two to four fetches in your deck. Just try it out. Without yeah. cutting any lands. Right, yeah. Don't cut add, any of the lands you're already running. Lands. If you're running 18, run 20 to 21, but make those three extra lands fetches. And watch your deck do the same thing it did before without... With, and probably do better in its opening hand. And you'll have more consistency through the early stages of the game. So going back to the topic of building a, a better mana base, there, in my opinion, there's just not a perfect mathematical formula for determining what sources of mana that you need. Some of them that are out there are, are kind of helpful, and maybe it's a good place to start. You can also copy mana bases that already exist. You won't be net decking if you do so, which it's fine if you net deck. I don't think there's anything wrong with it if that's what you want to do. But that's a discussion for another that's day. That's a discussion for another day. So, But what I want to emphasize right now, it, one particular uh, aspect of building a, a better mana base is when you're brewing your deck, make sure that you have enough mana in there to hit the color you need when you need it, just like our green-red example. If you need red early for Goblin Guide or Lightning Bolt, don't cut down on your red sources, because if you do, you're not going to have access, statistically, to Guide or Bolt until late, later on in the game. Alrighty, so we're going to take another quick break, and we'll be right back with our final segment, which is our tournament report on the Star City Open DC, where... I, despite running Calgo, failed miserably, and Warren, running a completely rogue deck, did an amazing job. back to episode two of Into the Royal. Uh, so, as you all know, we went up to D.C. this weekend to try our luck in the Star City Open. Luck? Well, Magic me, is a game of skill. Yeah, but I believe the thing is, I believe the saying is 30% skill, 70% luck. As they say. So, I, as everyone can remember, ran in with Calgo. Which it was a little bit different from the build I gave you guys. And to our, our one listener out there who doesn't want to hear us talk too much about Calgo, it'll only be for a second, and it's only because that's what we ran. Yeah. So we went in there expecting Calgo to be the mirror, and so our secret tech for this, for both of our decks was right to run, after Pro Tour pairs was to run Wall of Tangle Cord and One X Forest in our deck with the capabilities of fetching it with the Misty Rainforest. Brilliant. <laughs> if it had only done us a little bit better than it actually did. So didn't I mean, help in the Calgo mirror. Didn't help. Well, it was helpful, but it wasn't crucial. It helped great against the aggro decks, though. So as everyone knows, we had 693 players there, and, well, that means one man gets the buy, right? And I mean, what are the odds? That I would get it. The guy he who's got it. Calgo. Uh, I get the buy, round one, so I get a round one match. I get a round one win right off the bat. I'm floating around going, yeah, look at me, I got the buy. And I was ecstatic for him. And so I go to game two, I go to match round two, sorry, and I'm playing Nick Spagnolo in the mirror match. Yeah, right. Right Nick off the bat. Nick Spagnolo, a pro, a very well-known pro, especially for his development and work on blue-black control, is his round two opponent, which is actually his first match of the day. And any of you out there that have played tournaments know that you just want to get that first match under your under your belt. You want it, it helps you relax, and then you can you just are itching to play. So you get a first round by, and you sit down to face Nick Spagnuolo. And you'd rather not face the mirror, but of course I had to expect it. It was easily fifty percent of the field. So now, did he do anything different? I mean, you and I both felt that beating the mirror, playing Calgo, beating the mirror was the most important thing. Did he do anything different he to, did, for that? He did one of. The, there were two builds that were really running around in uh, DC. There was the, you know, so-called American Calgo, which was blue, white, red. For the record, I don't like naming stuff like it that. wasn't called that but i heard it oh okay, okay. Around. It was, that wasn't the name it was calgo is what it was called but I, I just heard that being it was people calling that for just you know to categorize it and it was running bolt in the main deck and cunning spark mage basilisk collar and inferno titan out of the sideboard inferno titan inferno titan in calgo they were running i believe it was two mountains and two scalding tarn or like two red fetchlands and 
I believe Jerry Thompson, the winner of Star City DC, that was his build, was the Lightning Bolt Inferno Titan, obviously using Stoneforge to fetch up a Basilisk Collar when they needed it. I wouldn't um, myself argue with Jerry that two mountains in the mana base for a double red mana requirement is probably not a great idea, but... He won it, and I didn't. And I saw it on the bo- on his side of the board a couple times. So, anyway, I go up against Nick Spagnola, who's running a interesting build. It ran Mortar Pod, which is the sack and deal one damage to target creature or player. I thought that was only good in draft. And also Basilisk Collar, so now that thing has Death Touch. Nah. Um, he also used Trinket Mage to fetch up the, bas- the Basilisk Collar, and I believe Mortar Pod, which is also a two-drop, rather than using a Stoneforge for that. So game one, I get beat, and game two, I get beat. So straight up in the mirror, didn't have a shot. Um, did it, did it go, like almost go the distance? I mean, was it a competitive match? Or? When we finished, there were about ten minutes left. Game one was competitive. Game two, I got stuck on three lands, and I just couldn't do anything. Uh, so, you know, what are you going to do? So I lose, you know, my second round, but, you know, first match of the day. But, you know, I'm fine. I was playing a pretty good pro. I was playing the Mirror, which was my hardest matchup anyway. And he said that you played really well. That yeah, I felt that was a personal That's problem. That's encouraging. Anytime a, you know, a pretty big pro says, hey, man, you played pretty well and had me on the ropes a couple times, I feel good. Yeah, and you're one and one. So, yeah, so, so I run into round two. Three. Three, well, yeah. For me, round two, for in the, technically round three, and I face the Mirror again. And I'm going, geez, it is not my day today, is it? I felt with the buy, maybe I'd get lucky and run into, like, goblins six times in a row. Not so lucky. Um, run into Mythic right again off the bat, one and one, and... Mythic? Mythic, sorry. Calgo. Well, oh. it's, it's basically the new Mythic anyway. <laughs> um, run into Calgo, never find, in this match round, uh, whatever, I never find any of my Planeswalkers, and only ever find Stoneforge once, and it was on turn five rather than turn two. And I managed to win the second game, but lose game one and three. So, to Hero of Bladehold, of all things. Um, Hero of Bladehold in Colgo. In Colgo. Out of the side? Uh, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, so, round, you know, we're going on to round four. I'm a little bit going, geez, if I run into another Colgo deck, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I get lucky and run into Goblins um, with our a good friend of ours who had shown up at that time. Mm-hmm. Rob. Watching. Um, he had a son named Gideon, ironically, and I was playing Gideon Jura. And we think that's just the coolest name ever, ever. to name your... Now, he did not, <clears throat> excuse me, he did not name his son Gideon after the Planeswalker. It's just coincidence that they have the same name. But, you know, if I was a, if I was a kid and I had a name like Gideon, that'd be pretty cool. So, and ironically enough, Gideon was the reason I won both those games for that match. And yes. Shut down Goblins pretty handily. Uh, so I'm 2-2, two and two, walk against my next opponent, and it's Valakit, playing a very interesting build, running Inferno Titan in the main, rather than Primaval. Uh, well, it's like 2 Primaval, 2 Inferno. Um, was this the Valakut backup kind of plan that I was... I think so, about? but he was running it main deck. That Inferno Titan was main deck, yeah. not sideboard. Did he have Hero in the main? I did not see it. Okay. Um, so I beat him game one pretty easily with a Gideon Jura. It just gets stuck and swings in for 18. Gideon rocks. And then game two goes for 30 minutes. And I was dead to rights, but managed oh, to yeah, fall yeah, away. Yeah, I remember this. Thanks to Leyline of Sanctity and going ultimate with Jace the Mind Sculptor. And managed to just pull out a win. How many cards was left in his deck? None. He, he lost due to... Uh, Deck out. But prior prior to going ultimate. Yeah, there were only about 15 cards left in his deck. And it was just, oh. And, and you won that by bouncing his primeval back to his hand. It was Inferno. He had Inferno. But, and, uh, but you have ley lines, so it turn. doesn't matter. Yep. Uh, so I've got nice. three and two. Go up against my next opponent, and it's Boros, which ends up with me going to a draw. And if I had one more turn, I could have nailed him. But he had Basilisk Collar in his deck with no Cunning Spark Mage. Ye- just what? for the life gain. Uh. So it was kind of frustrating. That's a frustrating not loss. A good play, but you it's know, not. I went to a draw. It's a very good match. Um, the guy played great. I feel both sides just played their hardest and couldn't win. Either way, you just weren't drawing your outs. Yeah, and then my final, I went three three one for the tournament. Uh, this is my final match here coming up, which is a loss if any of you are keeping record. If any of you um, scare easily, you, you might want to just kind of. Tune out for a couple minutes. So we're walking up to 
the uh, the table, and we get a, we get the deck check. And, and this is following the match that went to a draw. To a draw. We get the deck and check. He, and may I, I'm just going to jump in for a second. He, the next round was waiting for his match. So there was a rush to, as soon as this match with the draw finished, it was check the new pairings and go. There was no time in between. I managed to unsideboard, though, thankfully. So we get the deck check. I'm going, okay, whatever. I double-checked my sideboard. All my cards are straight. My opponent's flipping out because he thinks he left one of his sideboard cards in his main deck. The, de- the judges come back ten minutes later and say, um, we can talk to both of you. And I'm going, okay, cool. He's probably just doing this for formalities. And they're going, you're missing two cards in your deck. And I go, what? He says, yes, you're missing a tectonic edge and a mana leak. And I reach into my pocket and pull Not out, that they're important. Yeah, reach into my pocket and pull out this, those two cards. And I go, whoops. I'd taken them out of my game, uh, of my deck between game two and game three to sub in two other cards in my sideboard. And due to time, hadn't shoved them back into my deck box and put them back into my deck. So my deck was two cards short, which causes me a game loss. But my, However, opponent, my opponent was right and had forgotten the sideboard. So he got a game loss. Double game loss. We go to a best of one. He's mono red aggro, which is my worst matchup. And no far. chance for you to sideboard that mm-hmm. awesome wall of tangle cord in. Which would have saved my butt. So just lock it down. So I go on tilt after that and just decide to drop. I could, I didn't feel very good after that. I didn't feel like I should be playing in a standard tournament after that. He didn't even feel like he should be playing magic anywhere. Uh, that was a pretty big punt, and it was a very easily avoidable punt. That if I just kept my cool in the last match, I would have been fine. But I didn't. And I asked him, I said, you, man, you know you always pile shuffle before you start playing. I said that. And he said, I did. And I was like, well, you were short 60, right? And he's like, yeah, I thought I miscounted. <laughs> no, you actually counted right. Two cards short, 58. Usually when that, when that happens, I check my sideboard first. And if my sideboard is correct, I say my main deck is correct. Yeah, that's a good, good, good point. I think it's always, even though I pile shuffle before the start of every match, I also check my sideboard for 15 cards. And if it's 15, I'm going, I probably miscounted. Sleeves will stick. Cards yeah. will stack on top of each other. True. You'll put two cards down by mistake. It happens. It does. So, But, you know, it was a bad punt, but I'm okay with it. I, I came away from that tournament feeling good. I went 3-3-1, which is technically a winning record. It's not a losing record. Not a losing record, anyway. So I felt good for my second tournament ever running the, I guess, technically incorrect version of the Calco Tech. What we thought was the best deck. Um... You know, I felt pretty good about it, but I'll let Warren uh, wrap this episode. And I'll and I'll say too, what I'd like to say is, you know, and this is kind of digressing, but even though you run the best deck, that's no guarantee that you're going to top eight or top sixty-four. A lot of times when I go to a competitive environment, I don't. And this is going to go against what a lot of people say. Yes, of course, I'm trying to win, but what I'm doing is I'm concentrating on every phase. I just want to play every phase of every turn. Correctly, and if I do that, that's all I have control over. And if I play as correctly as I can on every phase, then the result that I'm looking for will, by default, occur. But you so, can guarantee I'll never miscount my deck again. He'll never forget that, and I'll never let him look at that. <laughs> so when uh, I had a great tournament, uh, I, I what I enjoyed the most was that. My son and I and our friend Eric, who is the Abyssal Persecutor attachment guy, who is probably listening to the show, and you know what? We still love you. And ready to kill us. And he's ready to kill us. So I I just enjoyed being able to spend, it's about a three and a half hour drive from our house to D.C. Enjoyed spending time with him. We got there safely. We went out the night before, uh, got to play test in the hotel room. Hey, pizza. uh, Eat some pizza. Uh, you know, that's, that's what we all do. It, it, we were so obviously magic players. You know, we all had book bags on and, and eating pizza in the hotel room. Uh, before he goes on, I just want to give a quick shout out to my stepmother, his wife, Debbie. She packed us a whole lot of food. Oh my God. Easily enough to feed about triple our number. Yeah. But it was really helpful. And without that, we probably would have been a lot worse. And, off and I can't tell you how important it is to kind of have support from your loved ones in pursuing a passion. Um, she had food for us, water for us, 
so many things were just done. All we had to do was pick up and go. And yeah, I also too want to give a shout out to my wife, uh, Debbie. Thank you very much. And you made so much possible. We so, uh, we love you. And, um, so we went up, uh, Friday, the day before and, uh, wanted to get some sleep. Obviously we were not going to leave at six o'clock in the morning and start playing at 10 a.m. when the drive is three and a half hours away. We had all the cards that we needed. Uh, however, I spent six weeks working with Zach and Eric on their decks and was thinking that maybe from working on their decks and playing the villain, which means I more times than not was the Boros player, the Valakut player, the Calgo player. And I thought, well, you know, after playing all these games as the villain, there, there may be a deck that jumps out at me that I want to play. Um, didn't really happen. Mm-hmm. And I also wanted to build something that was affordable. I mean, it was competitive, but I wanted it to be affordable too, because Zach had all the mind sculptors and the Gideons and of all the good stuff. And um, so I built a Boros version that was essentially mono-white, splash red. Uh, the red was for Bolt and Hero of Oxid Ridge. Which, I want to mention, is one of probably the most crucial cards I pick up right now. Oh. It is the anti-cargo card. Oxid Ridge rocks. If you're running red anything and you're not running that card, you're probably doing something wrong. To everyone out there who's running Boros, in the current metagame, cut cough, add or increase Hero Oxid Ridge. Four. It's a game breaker. Um, I ran two. Uh, I also, strangely enough, Goblin Guide. Most people probably find that um, ridiculous, but hear me out. I cut Goblin Guide since I was predominantly white for Student of Warfare. And someone's laughing at me. I am. What is so funny? You just said predominantly white. (laughs) (laughs) That the the deck was uh, mostly white. And um, the, I put Student of Warfare in Goblin Guide's place, and the reason really was I just thought that the long-term investment in Student of Warfare, and investment meaning over the course of turns, that he would get in for more damage. And also, that if I drew Student, student of Warfare late in the game, um, his value increases as well. You can just pump a whole lot of, of white man into him and, you know, turn five or six if the game goes that long. Of course, being an hyper deck, you don't want it to, but it does happen. Um, and I cannot tell you how awesome Student of Warfare was. I mean, the guy just gets in for damage and the slower your opponent's deck is, it, it was very common for Student of Warfare to get in anywhere between six to nine points of damage and, um, not feed your opponent any lands in the process. So uh, I, I, I very much liked the selection and decision to run student over guide. Um, I think going back, what I would have done was cut step links and ran goblin guide and student of warfare. I think I would try that out a little bit, even though I love step links. But when I drew step, step links in the opening hand, it was great. And when I drew it late, it just wasn't great. It just failed. It just was a cat, a kitty cat. Laying on the board, yeah. oh one, not doing a whole lot. And sometimes I was fortunate enough to equip him and make him better. But um, I had some interesting matches throughout the day. I beat every aggro deck I faced, uh, mainly because they couldn't handle student warfare. So I had the aggro match locked, uh, locked up, and I just couldn't beat Calgo. It, it just—it's not a good matchup for Boros. Although the word on the street that Boros is a good matchup. Uh, if you're the Boros player, you know, you want to play against Calgo. I, I don't see it. I, I've, I've tested it. I've played against it. You can have some good starts. Boros is great against Calgo when you hit your linear draw by hitting your turn one guide, uh, turn two, play the GOP. I actually think guide is their worst draw. I think their best draw is Maybe. turn one, is turn one step left, turn two, adventuring gear, equip, mm. drop a fetch on turn three. And just get in for 12 points of damage before mm-hmm. they're able to do anything. And if they don't hit a Stone Forge or a Squadron Hawks turn two, it's almost game. And it's how I lost one yeah. match against Boros was just because he could kill, he hit me for 12 by turn three. Yeah, it's basically, as the Boros player, you need to be swinging for lethal on four, which you can do with uh, Hero of Oxid Ridge. If you're incredibly lucky. Swinging for lethal 1-4 against Calgo. Other than that, the, the matchup seemed incredibly difficult. And it's not, as I've been saying, it's not Hawks in, in the equipment that gives a, 
the opponent trouble. It's the Gideon Colonnade cleanup role. Well, and just line sculptor in general. They shut it out. I mean, Gideon and Colonnade just, you know, they just DOJ the board away and they're swinging for a lot of damage once that's finished. But, um, what some things I would recommend if you are playing Boros is cut the feast and famine, add bone hoard. It's a, it's a great metagame yes. call right now. Um, Boros doesn't really need that much mana open, uh, at the end of their turn. Not, not like control players do. Um, I actually am running sort of body and mind and bone hoard. Bone hoard is just so good right now. Um, in the competitive environment, you can fetch it with Stoneforge Mystic, and you can play it for a creature. So it, it's really cool to cast Stoneforge, fetch it on the next turn, play uh, or use Stoneforge's ability to play a forecasting cost creature on turn three. And then all of a sudden, uh, one of your squadron hawks are 8-8-10-10 in, in no time at all. So uh, Yeah, DOJ isn't so great after that. Nope. And even if you don't run it in the main, just run it in the side and, and bring it in against uh, control players. Uh, anyway, first match was against what I thought was Kadotha Red. It went Mountain Memnite Kadotha Rebirth. Uh, as the games progressed. progressed, there were Goblin Chieftains, Inferno Titans, Slagstorms, the Hammer, Slagstorms, all of this in what I perceived as a Kadotha Rebirth deck. But in any event, um, it did go to, to three games, unfortunately, um, on a bad draw on my end. When I, I had to mulligan down a few hands on the second game. But anyhow... Uh, it was an aggro matchup, which I won and won all day long. Uh, games two, three, four, you know, to make it short, I played against Colgo twice, lost. Played against Valakut twice, lost. And the four, um, five, I'm sorry, the five aggro matches I played, I won every one of them. So I ended up going five and four. Um, as the day went on, you know, I, I, I wasn't really thinking about top eight or anything. You know, of course I wanted to. But the deck I was playing was untested for me. And, but as the day went on, I was like, you know what? Maybe I can like top 64. And what the encouragement that I was giving myself is see how well you can play. So I mean, just how high can you go with a five and four or, or a six and four record? And how high, how far did I place? 154th out of 693, ladies and gentlemen. Give it up for Warren. And, of course, the guy going Colgo plays 286, but I'll take being in the upper half of that 286? Well. 286. What was mine? You were 154. So I was higher, right? Yeah. Okay. That's usually how math works. Just checking. Um, I think he's just trying I was to higher, right? Yes. Okay. Okay, we get it now. Um, anyway. We had a great time. Uh, definitely. Uh, I do recommend, if you're ever staying in D.C. for another event, the Radisson is a great place. It's cheap. It's right near the convention center, and it's about three blocks well, away about, from the metro. Yeah, it's about 15 minutes away from yeah. the convention. If you take the metro. I don't know what it is by driving. Yeah. Um, it's only like four miles away from the hotel. Yeah, and it's about 90 bucks a night, so it's a great place to stay. Yep. Very clean, very... It was great. Yeah, and everything about the trip was great. So we're going to wrap this up. This is the end of the episode, so I guess we'll just cut out here. This is Zach. And this is Warren. Signing out. This has been an Into the Royal production. If you would like to contact us, you can email us at intotheroyalpodcast at gmail.com. You may also visit our website, intotheroyal.wordpress.com, to feel free to leave a comment at any time. Thank you again, and have a nice day.